All right. How are you guys doing this morning? Good. That was so underwhelming. I like, I tell you, I woke up this morning and, and I'm, I'm starting to get ready and Pastor Gabe goes, why are you, I don't call her Pastor Gabe at home, by the way. <laughs> but she goes, why are you up? It's, it's Monday. I go, no, it's Sunday. And then from that point on, your whole, you're just totally discombobulated, right? Like, oh, wait, is it? I don't know. Is it? Like, you just lose track of days after a while, or maybe it's just us, but we're, um, we're glad to be here. I have a quick question for you. Just show of hands out there online. You can raise your hand, and I won't see you because that'd be weird, but, but who, who's going to join us for our 4th of July service on Sunday? Good. Very good. All right. I saw a few hands go up, but then you processed. So, okay, very good. No services on Sunday. We are just going to have a fantastic time of fellowship on Saturday the 3rd. Please join us. We had such a great time. She talked about it, but we had such a great time doing fellowship and barbecue and stuff and games and things outside. It was awesome. So let's do that on the 3rd and so that we can just enjoy the 4th together at home with our families. So, all right. Hey, let's get going into this message. We are in the we are in the the climax of this story of the book of Job. And if it's your first time here, go back and check out our website. Welcome, first of all, if it's first time online or here in house. Uh, but go back and listen to some of the archived messages, especially the first few that kind of lay out the first few chapters that lay out really what's going on here. So I won't recap a lot of that. But as we get near the end, we are in week 30. This is week 30. Only two more weeks, okay? We've got two more weeks, and we're going to wrap this thing up uh, and so that we can get into July with a whole, new, uh, a whole new series. And, hey, on that note really quick, if you're in-house or you're out there online anywhere, shoot me some ideas. What we're going to do is we're just going to do kind of a shortish sort of a segue series before we jump into our next long-term uh, expository going through a chapter. That will probably be the book of John that we're going to go through. Uh, but I'd like some ideas from you of, of things that you'd like to hear some teaching on for just maybe a, a few weeks of kind of, again, that sort of a segue series. So shoot us some ideas. Um, I've been praying about that, and I've got some, some things I feel the Lord is leading me, but I want to see if he's leading any of you in the same direction, and we'll do that. Uh, but, okay, so back to the book of Job. Wrapping up here, we have seen uh, so much happen, and as we get near, I just want to make sure that we keep the main thing the main thing, that we don't lose track of what's actually going on and what the point of this whole thing is. And I think the point, as I said at the very beginning, and we've seen this thread all the way through, the point of the book of Job is not needless suffering. It's not an indifferent, uncaring, mean, vindictive God. It's none of those things. What it is is a loving God using the trials in our lives for our benefit. And I know it's hard to wrap our minds around how God could use something terrible that happens either in our lives or in the world and that's our human nature. We say, we, we think that if things are good, that means we're comfortable, we're well-fed, we're, we're, we're not challenged in any way, we're just sitting back in our easy chair enjoying a pina colada, and that's what God wants for us all. But we don't grow in that situation. We would stay stagnant. We would stay where we are. And God loves us enough to know that there's so much more in us, all of us, 
than we would ever really reach for on our own. He challenges us every day. And sometimes the things that we call pain and suffering and trials in our lives are those very instruments that God uses for our good. That's the point here of the book of Job. Suffering is not necessarily punishment or consequences for our bad actions. So let's get in. Last week, quick recap of last week, Elihu. Remember, the three friends had been battering Job back and forth, and then this guy Elihu shows up out of nowhere. And I believe that Elihu is, is a messenger sent from God. Not an angel, but a messenger used by God to really to prepare Job's heart for what God's about to say to him. Because Job's in this place of pain and suffering, and his mind is starting to wander. And he sends Elihu, I think, to kind of say, calm down. Listen up, God's got this. And he gives him kind of a little preview of what's happening. And what's really cool is some of the things that Elihu says is clearly spirit-led. It's not anything Elihu could have just known in his flesh. Now, he goes back and forth, but he says this, our very first scripture for today, Job 36, 15. He, meaning God, rescues the afflicted in their misery and opens their ears in time of oppression. Now, rescues the afflicted in their misery. I taught extensively on this last week, but know this. It's their misery itself that God uses to rescue the afflicted. It's not, oh, you're afflicted and you're in misery. I'll rescue you. I'm going to use that misery itself to rescue you is what he's saying here. And then the second one, Job 37, 13, whether for correction or for his earth or for goodness, he causes it to happen, meaning everything that comes your way, the good, the bad, the, the indifferent, it is all something that God uses for either you, for his planet, for the earth, or for his purposes. God uses all of it. And in that process of, of several chapters of Elihu giving his speeches, he reaffirmed really two very important things for Job to remember Number one, God can, does, and will use the trials and pain in our life to keep us from sin. Not only to elevate us, but to literally to keep us safe, to keep us away from sin. Where Job 33, 17, 18, Elihu said, So that he may turn a person away from bad conduct and keep a man from pride. He keeps his soul back from the pit and his life from perishing by the spear. Literally says, bad things can happen to you so that you can be saved from sin and from these bad things that can come your way. Something very hard for Job, especially at that time, but even for us today to grasp. Bad things can come our way to keep us from sin. And then the second thing that Elihu kind of affirmed, God's ways are so much higher than we will ever be able to comprehend. And it's our attempt, really, to comprehend or to put sense or, you know, the churchy term is put God in a box. <clears throat> we want to say we know how God works and why he would work that way. But in fact, every time we try to do that, it seems like we're confounded in that effort to determine how God works and why he works. His ways are so much higher than we can comprehend. Elihu says this in Job 37, 14 through 16. Listen to this, Job. Stand and consider 
the wonders of God? Do you know how God establishes them and makes the lightning of his clouds to shine? Do you know about the hovering of the clouds, the wonders of one who is perfect in knowledge? He's just saying, look, Job, you may be smart. You may be the smartest man in the room. You may be the smartest man in your village, but you are not God. You don't know the things that God knows. And even Elihu was pretty prideful and thought he was kind of all that and knew a lot of things. But he said, you know, we can't know some of these things of God. And before Job's trials began, Job was rock solid on this too. Before his friends started beating him up, before the devil started getting his influence. Remember at the very beginning, very beginning of Job's trials, he has just lost his family. He has just lost his, his servants, his cattle, his livestock, his livelihood. He's lost all these things in this horrible trial. And he himself, this is how it went for him. Job uh, chapter 1, verse 20 to 22. Then Job got up. Remember, after all these things have happened to him, and he's just getting the news that these terrible things have happened in his life. Job got up, tore his robe, shaved his head, fell to the ground, and worshiped. Verse 21, then he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Despite all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. The moment, literally the moment he heard all these things have happened. Leah, if you want to turn the AC down, you can. Just go turn it down. Um. Job's first response, his heart was immediately to praise God in this. But these relentless attacks, attack after attack after attack from his friends, made him start to waver, made this little prideful thing start to, start to rise up in him. Have you ever done that? Like, you're okay, and then a friend or somebody starts telling you, you should, you should stand up for yourself. You should do what's right. That's not right. You should do this. And all of a sudden, you're like, yeah, you know what? You're right. I should, I should speak up. I should do that. You let a friend talk you into something that maybe you wouldn't have gone to before. I'm not saying all your friends are devils. But this is what clearly we see happening here. So Job chapter 7. Now we're, gonna, we're flashing back so that we can make sense of what's going on. Job chapter 7, verses 20 and the first part of 21. Job says, Have I sinned? What have I done to you, watcher of mankind? Why have you made me your target so that I'm a burden to myself? Why then do you not forgive my wrongdoings and take away my guilt? He's saying, why are these, ha these things happening? He's demanding some answers from God, and he's demanding the chance really to argue his case with God. This is where pride starts to creep in as an equal. Now we have today, we have Jesus as our intercessor, and we can... We can speak to him through the Holy Spirit, and, and he is our friend, and we've been taught this so many times. But to talk to God like he's your equal, like he somehow owes you something. This is where Job is, Job 31, verse 35 through 37. Oh, that I have one to hear me. Here's my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. And the indictment which my adversary has written, I would certainly carry it on my shoulder. I would tie it to myself like a garland. I would declare to him the number of my steps. Listen to this. Like a prince, I would approach him. Job is saying, only, if, if only God were here, I would approach him boldly like a prince. 
I would stand in his presence and I would proudly say, here is my statement. That's a dangerous place for Job to be. And this is exactly what God is trying to refine off of him. And he also goes even further than that. He insinuates that God may not even be judging correctly. Like even if God is judging him, which he doesn't know what God would judge him for, he wants answers for that, but then he says, even if you are judging me, maybe you're not judging me correctly. Job 31, 6, let him weigh me with accurate scales and let God know my integrity. He's insinuating the scales have been tipped somehow and God is not being just. All these things paint this picture of a Job who's starting to get a little little too prideful, and insinuating that God is not righteous. Now, after all this time, after all this time, after 29 weeks that we've been through in the, cha- in the book of Job, and all this, whatever it amounted to in real time, Job is suffering this entire time, begging for his chance to hear from God, lamenting the fact that I used to hear from God all the time. And now I don't. So I'm like a ship without a rudder. I don't know where I'm going. I don't know what I'm thinking. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know why this is happening. He doesn't know answers to any of these things. And he's literally begging for the chance to hear from God now. Finally, we're at this point. All of us can hear from God now. God weighs back in. And we're at these chapters now where God finally speaks to Job after all this time. Guess what, though? It's not what Job thought he was going to hear. If you're going through all this stuff, wouldn't you expect that when God finally did speak, he would explain to you why this happened? Maybe give you the backstory like, look, Job, okay, I appreciate your patience in all this, but see, the devil and I had this thing back at the beginning, and I knew that you could stand up to it. That's why I put you out there to the devil, because I knew that you could stand up and, and that you would be better through all this. You'd be refined through this. And not only that, we'd show the devil. We'd put him in his place. You think Job was hoping to hear something like that? Some kind of answers? For thousands of years, ever since this book was written, audiences like us, have read this going, okay, here's where God speaks, and God's, God's going to set this all straight. He's going to make it make sense. Any book that you've ever read, the last couple chapters are where it all comes together, right? And it makes sense. If you want to know how any book, it, you read the first chapter, you read the last chapter. Who did that in high school other than me? First chapter, last chapter typically tells us all we need to know. Here's what you need to know, though. God speaks. We're going to go in depth into what God says here. God never one time addresses what happened to Job. He never one time addresses what Job's going through. Never. But he does explain it. He lets Job figure it out. But that's the point. God never addresses it because he is a sovereign God. And he has no obligation to explain to us why he does what he does. That's what sovereign God means. Here's the other thing, though. A kind, loving, sovereign, omniscient, all-knowing God knows that even if he did explain it to us, we probably wouldn't understand it. 
or we'd hear it wrong. Remember, Jesus says this. Jesus says something very similar. John 16, 12, when he's talking to his disciples, he says, there's many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them at the present time. Meaning they, didn't, they literally did not have the, the equipment on board to understand the things Jesus wanted to tell him, tell all of them. If God laid out his entire plan for the world to us, our minds would explode. There's no way that we could grasp it. So instead of explaining his reasons for what has happened and how this is all going to play out, God simply reaffirms his awesome power, reaffirms his sovereignty. Now, a quick side note on this. We've been talking many times through the book of Job, kind of equating it to a courtroom setting, okay, where God is the judge. Job is pleading his case. The devil is the accuser and using his friends as the accusers, kind of this courtroom scene back and forth. In Hebrew culture, a judge had two responsibilities, two main responsibilities that a judge would have. Number one is to arrive at a good and just verdict, right? That's, to this day, that's what we expect out of judges. But then, in that culture, a judge was also expected to enforce that verdict. Not only to judge righteously, but to enforce it. Because a judge, without the ability to enforce it, if you say, you owe him $1,000, but I've got no way to enforce that happening, what good is it? What good is that judgment if you can't enforce it? And that's the way. A judge without wisdom to discern truth was of little help. A, wisdom, a judge without the power to enforce that judgment was equally of little help. Here's a quick example. In the women's Bible study, I know one of the studies that uh, Pastor Gabe led was the book of Judges. They've talked about Judges. If you've never read the book of Judges, read it. It is awesome. The book of Judges is incredible. But here's a quick example. After Joshua, we know, that, we know that Moses wasn't able to enter the promised land, right? But Joshua took the people into the promised land. We were able to see that. And after Joshua died, immediately the people of Israel went back to their ways. Almost immediately. Started straying, and their enemies immediately started taking advantage of that weakness. Immediately. And so God sent the judges, okay? So read, specifically, I'm going to read a scripture from, from Judges 2, verse 16. But read Judges. If, if not today, read it sometime soon. There's so much in there. Judges 2, 16. Then, this is after, that, after the enemies of Israel have started to take advantage, after Moses died, after Joshua died. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them, from the hands of those who plundered them. Now, in the book of Judges, it details 12 judges. There was Deborah, Gideon. Uh, Pastor Gabe taught about Shamgar a while ago. He was one of the judges. These guys, these guys excuse my language in church, they were badasses. <laughs> these guys were awesome. Guys and women, Deborah, they were awesome. The word judges in Hebrew is pronounced shafat. And, and Shaphat means literally to do justice. It doesn't mean you just sit and dispense wisdom. You do justice. 
I pictured Dirty Harry doing justice. These guys, these guys were awesome. But the point is this, that a just and righteous God without the power to enforce his will is not much of a God at all. God could make all the judgments, but if he couldn't enforce that or do his will, he's not much of a God. A just God, a sovereign God, El Shaddai, the almighty God, has no obligation to explain himself to us, only to enforce what his will is. That's what he does. Now, he's given us today, sitting here today, out there at home, wherever we are, we've got what's called the Logos Word. We've got the written Word of God. And we can go through and we can read story after story after story of how God was faithful. How even the people at the time didn't know it, didn't see it, but God was faithful and he was just. And things worked out through history every time the way God intended them to work out. We can look back at that here, sitting here today, and we can go, okay, I can lean on that. That I don't know how things are happening now, but I can see that throughout history, it's always worked like that. We can do that. Job didn't have that. So the question for Job, as it is for us today still, even with all the advantages we have, the Holy Spirit, we have all these things that Job didn't have. The question still boils down to the very same thing. Do you trust in him or not? Do you trust in God or not? I think if you know Jesus and you call yourself a Christian, your answer is probably immediately going to go, yes. Yes, I do. But your real answer determines exactly how you respond to the trials of life. When trials, suffering, things come your way that you don't understand, do you trust in him enough to have peace that he is in control? Think about that as we get in. We're getting into the scripture now. Here we go. Remember now, Job didn't have the written word of God. So God is speaking. God can't just say, look, I've been faithful all along. Job only has his little sliver of history that he understands. So rather than to give an account of why things happen the way they do, here, let me answer your question, Job. Let me explain why that happened. Let me explain why that happened. Rather than to do any of that, or better yet, rather than to further accuse Job, God answers Job with this blistering series of questions. I'm going to read some to you here. First of all, starting up, Job 38, verses 1 through 3. This is how this section opens up. Then the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind and said, Who is this who darkens the divine plan by words without knowledge? Now tighten your belt on your waist like a man, and I shall ask you, and you inform me. Ooh. If God says to you, put on your big boy pants because here it comes, yike. That's what he's telling, telling Job here. Now, I'm going to read to you. There's in, in this chapter, I came up with about 33 different questions that God is just hammering Job with. Not accusations, questions. I'm just going to read them to you in question form, okay? They're, they're in Job 38. Okay, God addressing Job. 
Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Who set its measurements? Who stretched the measuring line over it? On what were its bases sunk, its foundations sunk? Who laid its cornerstone? Who enclosed the sea with doors? In other words, gave the sea boundaries. Have you ever in your life commanded the morning? Have you entered the springs of the sea? Have you walked in the depths of the ocean? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Have you understood the expanse of the earth? Where is the way to the dwelling of light? In other words, where does light go at night? And darkness, where is its place? Have you entered the storehouses of the snow? And have you seen the storehouses of the hail? Who has split open a channel for the flood and made a way for the thunderbolt? Does the rain have a father? Who has fathered the drops of the dew? And from whose womb has come the ice and the frost of heaven? Who has given it birth? Can you tie up the chains of the Pleiades? Can you untie the cords of Orion? Can you bring out a constellation in its season? Can you guide the bear with her satellites? Do you know the ordinances, in other words, the rules governing the heavens? Can you raise your voice to the clouds and make the rain fall? Can you send flashes of lightning? Who has put wisdom in your innermost being? Who has given understanding to the mind? Can you hunt prey for the lioness? Can you satisfy the appetite of young lions? Who prepares feed for the raven when it's young? Cry to God. Do you think Job's feeling a little overwhelmed at this point? Maybe feeling a little bit small? Like all this boasting about, hey, remember when I was the man and people would come to me so that I could dispense them my wisdom? He's got to be feeling a little bit small. Let's look a little closer at some of these verses. Let's pull them out. <coughs> Job 38, verses 4 through 7. I'll read this one to you. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements, since you know? Or who stretched out the measuring line over it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Now, God, God here is using the language of, at the time, what the highest human achievement was. Anyone know what the highest human achievement at the time of Job was? It was the construction of the Tower of Babel. So he's using construction language, stretching out a plumb line, laying its foundations, laying its cornerstones, these sorts. Of, he's using this language for, for, to explain to Job the, like, where were you when I did that for the earth? Think about how magnificent that was. Where were you? By the way, side note, when he says the sons of God, a lot of scholars get hung up on that, and people are like, who is he talking about here? It's the same sons of God from Job 1.6. It's just literally angels. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. Remember that? He's just talking about angels there. Job 38 Verse 14, it is changed like clay under the seal, and they stand out like a garment. He's talking about it, meaning the earth. 
The reason I bring this one up in particular is this section of Job, and really all of Job, is peppered with these little things that we can look at and see Job probably went, I don't know what you're talking about there. I don't get that. They're for us. They're for us to be able to see these things where God was explaining all the way back then in these little kind of cryptic messages how he created the earth, the heavens and the earth, and how things happen. What he's talking about here, it is the earth changed, is another Hebrew word means hafak, which means to turn or to rotate, okay, to flip, to flip over. And what it is, it's the image of the cylindrical seal of ownership. Back then in Job's time, you know, in, in later times from Job, they would have a signet ring and they would stamp that ring, remember, on a wax seal, in his time, in Job's time, what they would do is they'd take a piece of bone or a piece of stick and they would carve on that and they could roll that across clay to either write a book or to paint a picture or to set their seal of ownership. Here's an image really quick. This is a, we should have this image. This is a Mesopotamian cylinder seal. So on the left, it's a piece of bone that's been, char- uh, been carved into Mesopotamian, so that's the time roughly of Job, and they roll it across, and so that's what it looks like. The point here being that God is saying that it revolves around an axis, and there's more study that goes into that, but it's, it's one of these little God winks where God is saying the earth rotates on its axis, something Job would have no way to know. All right, you can take that down. Job 38, 16, have you entered the springs of the sea and walked in the depths of the ocean? Again, another little God wink here. Job had no way of knowing, and in fact, it was thousands of years before people understood that there were springs in the bottom of the ocean. And what he's talking about here is is how these springs, if you don't know about this, there are hot springs by by the trillions in the bottom of the ocean that are heated by the earth's core heated by the earth's core, and they spout this water into the ocean, and they regulate the temperature. And the regulation of the temperature in the oceans is what creates things like the Gulf Stream, which then help to, along with the moon, regulate tides, fish growth, you name it. It's all controlled. And without these hot springs in the bottom of the ocean, heated by the earth's core, that wouldn't happen. Job had no way of knowing any of these kinds of things. But God's saying, have, have you, were you the one that did all that, Job? No? Okay. Job 38, 21. You know, for you were born then, and the number of your days is great. Pure sarcasm. Some scholars, again, look at that and say, like, well, is God saying that Job was there when all these things were formed? No, God's saying just the opposite. It's sarcasm. It's another, I'm, I'm reading Scripture Time and time again, and I see sarcasm used as a tool for God to get his point across. Therefore, if I've ever been sarcastic with any of you, just know that that's holy. That's it's holy sarcasm. Pastor Gabe, if, wherever you are, it's holy sarcasm. God uses healthy doses of sarcasm to get his point across over and over again. Job 38, 33. Do you know the ordinances of the heavens or do you establish their rule over the earth? So he's talking about things like gravity, tides, navigation, constellations, these things. Are you the one that set that in motion, Job? Job 38, 36. Who has put wisdom in the innermost being or given understanding 
to the mind. Again, he's basically saying, where does wisdom come from? And we've seen this over and over again. James, New Testament scripture, James 1.5 says, But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives to all generously without reproach, and it will be given to him. God is the author of all wisdom. Always has been. God's saying, who, whose thing was that, Job? Now, if you might have noticed that, Job, that God's first line of questioning was all about celestial things, okay? It was about the planets. It was about the earth. It was about big picture things, right? It was all about the formation of the earth. And Job has got to just be sitting there going, um, uh, he's got no answer for this. If he does, we certainly don't see it recorded anyway. But these are, these are kind of high high, uh, high-end questions here. What he's going to do now, what God does now, is he kind of brings it down. So it's like, okay, formation of the heaven and the earth and the stars and the laws of the universe and all this, that's too much for you, Job. Let's just talk about everyday things. Let's just talk about things that you see happening around you every day, and maybe you have better luck explaining to me uh, how those things happen. should be a little easier for him, right? Now, this is where we need to remember that chapter breaks are man-made, okay? Where the chapter breaks happen is man-made. So the fact that we go from chapter 38 to chapter 39, it, that's really on us. And, chapter, and, and really this idea of going from the heavenly questions to the earthly questions started back in chapter 38, verse 39, 41, the very end of it. Can you hunt the prey for the lioness or satisfy the appetite of young lions when they crouch in their hiding places and wait in the lair? Who prepares feed for the raven when its young cries out to God and wander about without food? Now, later on, and in fact, often lions are portrayed as royalty and ravens are almost universally portrayed as, as evil or wicked. But in Job, both, we go back and check the scriptures, they're both seen as tools to punish essentially the wicked. The illustration here in that verse is that God cares for and provides for even those things that are considered wicked. So again, that was the end of 38. Now we're going to chapter 39, and again, God, another series of questions, right? Not as many. There's about 10 of them here, which he expands on. Here we go. Number one, do you know the time the mountain goats give birth? Do you observe the calving of the deer? Do you know the time they give birth? Who sent the wild donkeys out free? Will the wild bull be willing to serve you? Will he spend the night at your feeding trough? Do you give the horse his might? Do you clothe his neck with a mane? Is it by your understanding that the hawk soars? Is it at your command that the eagle flies high? We're going to go into it a little bit more in depth here. But these were things, again, Job saw all of these things happening every day. And God's saying, can you explain to me how this all happens? You see it all the time. It's right in front of you. Faced with these questions, you can see Job starting to go like, okay, I get it. I get what you're saying. Even the most mundane aspects of life are the results of God's planning, God's forethought in ways that Job never understood. So let's get into some of these scriptures. Job 39, 9 through 12. I'll read it for you. Will the wild bull be willing to serve you or will he spend the night at your feeding trough? 
Can you tie down the wild bull in a furrow with ropes, or will he plow the valleys after you? Will you trust him because his strength is great and leave your labor to him? Will you have faith in him that he will return your grain and gather it from the, thresh, from the threshing floor? He's saying even the wild bull, do you think it's by accident that he obeys you? What other wild animal, what other animal that you can find in nature is just going to do the work for you? God provided that. For Job. Now, humility, you can see humility is starting to take hold here as Job as God presents another case. This one is is sorta sorta silly if you just look at it at first. Job thirty nine thirteen. The wings of the ostrich flap joyously with the pinion and feathers of love. Now, translations vary on this depending on what version you have. It either says ostrich, stork, peacock. It can use all kinds of remember this is an old language and they're just trying to translate. I believe that it's ostrich, it's not important theologically, but I believe it's ostrich for a number of reasons. Only the ostrich lays its eggs on the ground, for one. Job 39, 14 through 16. For she abandons her eggs to the earth and warms them in the dust, and she forgets that a foot may crush them or that a wild animal may trample them. She treats her young cruelly as if they were not hers. Though her labor is for nothing, she's unconcerned. Meaning the ostrich, the ostrich is a bad mom. Lays her eggs in the dirt. What a, what a dumb animal. What a silly animal. And if they get crushed or trampled, she just goes on her way, flapping her wings and just, just being joyous. But here's the point of that. Even the dumb, silly ostrich has been gifted by God with things to protect it. It has a gift. No matter how silly you may be, you've got something, and the ostrich is no different. Job 39, 18, when she rushes away on high, she laughs at the horse and the rider. Any of you know that an ostrich is faster than a horse? An ostrich is faster even than a racehorse. The ostriches have been, have been clocked up to and over 60 miles an hour. And on average, even a racehorse is only about 44 miles an hour. Here's a quick, here's a quick video I found that illustrates this. Okay. Would be more fun if we had the volume on that, but that's okay. That's okay. 15 second video. But not only are they fast, but do you see that, that they, the males can roar like lions to scare away predators? Just a small picture. So again, back to, back to God. Speaking of horses, Job, did you have something with, to do with creating a magnificent horse? He talks specifically now, God paints this picture of a war horse. The courage, the strength, everything Every attribute of the war horse is a gift from God. Not only to the horse itself that it can do this terrible, dangerous job joyously, but actually as a tool for mankind. The courage and the strength that the war horse has are purely a gift from God. Job 39, 19. Do you give the horse his might? Do you clothe his neck with a mane? Verse 21. He paws in the valley and rejoices in his strength. He goes out to meet battle. 
What other animal would willingly rush into battle? Verse 22, he laughs at fear and is not dismayed, and he does not turn back from the sword. Verse 24, he races over the ground with a roar and fury, and he does not stand still when he hears the sound of the trumpet. Verse 25, as often as the trumpet sounds, he says, Aha! And he senses the battle from afar, and the thunder of the captain, and the war cry. This horse made to go into a situation where no other animal, even an ostrich, would not run willingly headlong into battle. The horse does that, and he does it joyfully, and he does that to serve mankind. Job 39, 26, is it by your understanding that the hawk soars, stretching his wings towards the south? That's a picture of creating lift. He's asking Job, do you understand, or do you know how, or did you govern the laws that say that when the hawk faces to the south, the warm air heats the earth and heats his wings and so that he can soar. Are you the one that figured that out, Job? You're sensing a pattern here. Verse 27, is it at your command that the eagle flies high and makes his nest on high? Verse 28, he dwells and spends his nights on the cliff, on the rocky cliff in inaccessible places. Again, that's this defense mechanism among others of the eagle. Verse 29, from there he tracks food. His eyes look at it from afar. Every aspect of the eagle, his, his sharp eyes from, a high, from a, the high safe place where his nest is, that he can see food. Every aspect of every animal has been carefully designed by God for a purpose. Nothing is by accident. This is what he's trying to point out to Job. And Job can see all these things every day. But he's probably never stopped to really think about it. He thinks he's smart. We all think we're smart. But the most mundane things that God has done, we could never know. Even in our human wisdom with the science and technology that we have today, it's such a small sliver of being able to understand the things that God, that God can do. Every aspect. So that now, that's the end of the first two chapters of God's response to Job. That's the end of that. How do you think Job felt after God's questioning? About this big? All of his complaints, all of his so-called wisdom, how would you have felt? How would you have felt if in the midst of your, of your prayers or your crying out to God or your anguish or your, or your flat-out anger about, God, why is this happening to me? What if God appeared before you and asked you these kind of questions? How would you feel? Let me bring it home into your living room. What are you praying for today? What are you praying for? What are you asking God for today? What questions do you have for him? What are you bringing before him saying, God, explain why this happened to me? Do you want to know why things are happening in your life the way they are? Have you been asking that? Maybe you're in the midst of a trial now or you have a loved one or somebody who is. Are you asking yourself or asking God specifically, why is this happening? How do you think God would answer those questions? The questions that we all have every day. And it's okay to ask God these questions. I want to reiterate, it's okay to ask God these questions. But think about how do you think God would answer you? How do you really 
think God would answer you. The question, the question again is this, do you trust in God to protect you? Do you trust in God to provide for you? Do you trust in God when necessary to vindicate you, to seek justice for you? Do you trust him in all those things or do you not? That's the question here. Job thought he did. Job started out fully trusting in God, but through this relentless barrage of his friends, which could really, let's be honest, could kind of be the news media, could be our friends, could be social media, could be a number of things that we experience, this barrage day after day that just eventually beat us down to where we start going, I don't know anymore. I thought I knew, but I'm not so sure now. Here's the thing, though. If you don't trust completely in God, if you don't trust completely in God and his goodness, the seed of anxiety will be planted. Hear me in this. The seed of anxiety will be planted if we do not trust completely with God. We can't compartmentalize our lives and say, I trust him with my salvation, but I don't trust him with my tax problem. I trust him with the governing of the universe, but I don't trust him with the health of my loved one. We can't compartmentalize. We trust him or we don't. The seed of anxiety will be planted if we don't. And the fruit of that seed is sin. The fruit of that seed of anxiety is sin. And that's what we see Job being corrected of here. Would you say, on average, I like these meat current mood or current situation that people post on social media and it's just a picture or, or some little meme or something like that. Would you say that on average, we all have ups and downs, on average, would you say your current mood is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? Would you say on general, on average, that's your current mood? Or is it worry? Is it anxiety about what if? What if? Or who's to blame for this? Who's to blame for that? If it's more that, anxiety is creeping into your life. Jesus explained to us the remedy for worry, and believe it or not, it's not having the answers to all your questions. It's trusting in a good, faithful, righteous, and sovereign God. I know I'm over on my time we're wrapping it up here. I'm going to read to you. This is Jesus' words from Matthew 6, 25 to 33. It's a long section. Let me read it to you. For this reason, I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, not for your body as to what you will put on. Is life not more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the sky that they do not sow nor reap nor gather crops into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more important than they? And, when you were, and which of you, by worrying, could add a single day to his lifespan? And why are you worried about clothing? Notice how the lilies of the field grow. They do not labor, nor do they spin thread for cloth. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. 
But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you? You of little faith, do not worry then, saying, what are we to eat? What are we to drink? What are we to wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be provided to you. Amen. Job's sin was this prideful attitude that he deserved to understand why all these things were happening to him, when it would end, and being angry with God that it wasn't being revealed to him as he thought that it would. Remember the last, the very last verse in that Matthew 6 section? Matthew 6, 34. So do not worry about tomorrow, for today will worry about itself. For tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Sound easy, right? Worry and faith cannot coexist peacefully. Hear this. Worry and faith. This is my conclusion of the message, so listen to this. Worry on one hand and faith in God on the other cannot coexist peacefully. There will be a battle. And if you're feeling anxiety and you're feeling struggles in your life today, it's that battle between the spirit in you saying, have faith in God, trust in God, and the anxiety, the worry, fighting with each other. True peace is only possible if you trust the King of kings and the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ, who gave it all for you on the cross. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Lord, thank you that this message from that long ago serves to remind us that you are sovereign, you are loving, you are, you are our everything. You are our El Shaddai, Almighty God. And Father, I personally repent of those times where I have questioned your purposes, questioned your will. Lord, help me to lay it all at your feet and trust in you. Lord, there's so much anxiety in the world. There is so much questioning. There's so much hate in the world. And if we were all able to set that aside and just trust in a good God, the good God that you are, the good God that sent his son for us, those things would go away. So, Father, help us. Help us to see those deceptions, those lies from the enemy for what they are and set them aside and follow you in faith and expectation. Lord, we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, we have prayer team in the back. If you're here in-house and you need prayer, look for someone in the back with a prayer lanyard. They'll pray for you. We have the crosses that you can pin your prayer requests there. If you have, we'll gather those and pray over them as a staff. It's time for communion, though. As worship team plays, we're going to serve communion in-house. If it's been a while since you've been here, we are now serving communion in-house. Gabe and I will be up front when we have wine and the bread or the crackers. You can do that. At the crosses, we have juice or the single-serve cups, whatever you're more comfortable with. If you're out there at home, grab whatever you have. And let's take communion together while we worship. Amen. God bless you guys.